history, according to Luke 21, part 2, spoken by Pastor Peter Ahn. Well, good morning, Metro, and good morning to those in the nursery and to everyone watching on our online community. We want to warmly welcome you here, especially if you're a first-time visitor. Thank you so much for uh, checking us out today. We really appreciate that. Uh, On Friday, I turned 44 years of age. Yes. And uh, we should celebrate... You know, for those who are in their 40s, 50s, even 60s, we should celebrate our birthdays. I don't know, I don't know about you, but listen, no offense to you if you're in your 20s, I would never want to go back to my 20s. <laughs> never. If God said you can go back, I would say, no, I don't want to ever go back there, right? So I love getting older. My body doesn't love it, but I love it. I, my emotions love it. My spiritual life loves getting older because I feel like there's a lot less issues that I have to deal with in my own life on a regular basis. And as you get older, you mature. Right? And you feel like you've matured more, you've seen more things in life, and you're better able to deal with things uh, that you might uh, be going through in your life. And so I, I really do enjoy the aging process. I got together with a friend of mine last week on Saturday, and I hadn't seen him in a while, and he's 29 years old. And I told him that I'm going to be 44 uh, next week. And, like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know why. I guess he didn't think I was that old. But his reaction just kind of startled me. He went, oh, my gosh. He said, pretty soon you're going to meet Jesus face to face. I said, what? I said, I got at least 40 more years, man. I mean, I hope I have 40 more years. So I was, I was like semi-offended by that. That he said, I'm going to meet Jesus soon, face to face. I mean, again, he's 29, so he just feels like he's going to live forever. And, you know, at the end of after being a little offended by what he said, he was right. I'm one year closer to the end of my life. <clears throat> What we all have in common, honestly, is simply this. When we were born and we took the first breath of air that fed into our lungs, the one thing we'll all have in common is that one day you and I will die. That the moment we took our first breath, we started the process of dying. And I know that's a very, like a morbid picture to paint, but that's the truth. No one's ever going to live forever on this earth in this lifetime. And what he said was true. And he said, the end, you're one year closer to the very end. And I truly am. And I don't know when I'm going to die. I hope it's going to be a long time. I want to walk my daughters down the aisle. I want to play with my grandkids one day. I mean, that'd be a dream of mine. I really would love to, like, help raise my grandkids. I don't know when God's going to call me home. But the point is simply this. Am I ready to go home? Am I ready for the end? And I guess that's the question I have for you today. Are you ready for the end? Because we don't have any absolutes. You don't know when you're going to go be with the Lord. I don't know. Are you ready? Are you prepared for the end? You see, as we're in the tail end of this gospel in Luke, and um, that's what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples. And there's such a weight to his words here. Because he's he's trying to prepare them for the end times. And I don't know when the end is going to happen. He gives us some clues. I'm not here to predict and say, we're almost there. No, I'm not here to say that. But simply we need, to, we need to heed what Jesus is saying here, that we have to be careful because the end may come. He's given us some signs. But the challenge is, are we prepared for the end? Are you prepared to stand before Jesus Christ and will it be an opportunity for you to hold your head up high and you'll be proud to see him? Are you going to wonder if it's going to be quite different for you possibly when you see him. You see, it all, requ- it all matters on how prepared we are. And so today we're going to look at sort of the end times. It's an eschatological passage, if you will. And in this story that Jesus shares with us, in this teaching, this robust teaching on the end times, he's really going to teach you and me how we can prepare ourselves for the very end so that if God were to call us tomorrow, 
We're ready to meet our maker. And that's what he wants to share with us today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 21. We'll look at verses 20 and following. We've got kind of a lot of scripture here, and I do hope that you'll stay with us, engage with us in the, in the text here. And um, I don't know why I want to do this. I hope I don't make you feel uncomfortable. But this is the word of God. Can we stand for it? Yeah? I, don't, I just I feel like we need to do it. Stand before God's word because it deserves us to stand in respect. I'm going to read it. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against the people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for, the, for their heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and, and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see yourself and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. This is the word of Jesus Christ. Can you bow your heads for a moment of prayer? And before we do that, can you just have a seat? Thank you so much for standing for God's word. Lord, this is not an easy teaching. And I think sometimes it's really easy for us to take lightly when we talk about the end and when you're coming. And I think even, God, it's easy for us to take our spiritual walk and our relationship with you very lightly. God, there's nothing light about what you have taught us in this passage today. And so, God, I pray that you would join us today. I pray that you would minister deeply into our hearts I pray that you would show us the deep need for you in our lives. And I pray, God, that you would be our magnificent obsession. That there'd be nothing else in the world, God, that we would be more obsessed over than you. Help us to get there, God, as far as we might be today. Help us to take monster steps forward in making you our magnificent obsession. So I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. 
All right, well, last Sunday we started chapter 21. We learned that there were two prophecies that Jesus gave. The first one was a sort of a, a short-term prophecy. The second one was really the one that we're going to spend most of our time on today, which focuses on the end times. But even here in this passage, for the first few verses that we looked at in chapter, in chapter 21, verses 20 to 23 or 24, is that we find that Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, what you need to know is that we covered this last Sunday, if you weren't here, was that the temple... Uh, in Jerusalem went through a major renovation period. It took 84 years to double the size of the temple. All right, Herod the Great started this in 20 BC, and it wasn't completed until 64 AD. 84 years. Jesus gives this prophecy at about 33 AD. The temple, once it had been completed, for six years, it had seen peace in Jerusalem, but after the sixth year, the Roman armies came in, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the people of God. Many people had lost their lives, and Jesus' prophecy was so on point that the people of God had to move to the mountains and relocate because they were so overwhelmed by the destruction and the, and, and, and the death that they were facing. They were so hungry, they had no food to eat, that they were cannibalizing one another. That's how desperate it got. It was a horrible time in the history of our world in 70 AD for the people of God. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Because it was clear that Jesus says, because they did not believe in me. They rejected Jesus Christ. And so as a result, judgment was there. The NIV calls it the time of punishment. Right? But when you translate that in the New Testament Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament... It really is translated as the days of vengeance. I know that's hard for us to grapple with that God would say that this is the day of my vengeance, but that's what happened in 70 AD. And what we learn from this text is simply this. Unfaithfulness is something that God does not ignore. Unfaithfulness is something that God does not ignore. And that's what we talked about last week, the significance of repentance, that if we don't repent, then God won't be able to forgive us of our sins, right? And repentance isn't just about saying, God, forgive me of my sins, but repentance is about us turning to the opposite direction of our sins and walking the other way. That's what repentance is. But in order for you and I to make that pivot, we have to have a plan to deal with our sinful nature. And we talked about last Sunday do you have a plan for your sinful nature? Hopefully you have thought about that this past week and you've created a plan to deal with your sinful nature because that is the true way in how you and I repent from our sins. Otherwise, what we learn here in this story is that unfaithfulness is something that God does not ignore. Okay, now listen, let's just talk a little bit about this because a lot of us have been trained and been taught sort of this way of understanding that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Our salvation can only come from what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. Amen? Amen. Nothing you do can ever get you into heaven. It's everything that God has done. But as a Christian now, our faith must always work itself out through actions. James says faith without works is absolutely meaningless. In fact, Paul re-echoes that in his letters to the church. That there needs to be a work component. Not so that you can get into heaven. No, God's already accepted you. But we are to obey simply because he has accepted you. So you obey out of that acceptance that God has given to you and to me. It has to work itself through our actions. And when we look at this passage here, we find that the people of God were turning their backs on Jesus Christ. And so as a result, it was a day of vengeance for God and many people died. God used the Gentiles for two purposes. For number one, he used the Gentiles to bring judgment, his vengeance on the people of God in 70 AD. But he also chose the Gentiles 
and he gave them the gospel message. And we are all, if you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. And the gospel message came to us. Now that happened in 70 AD, a prophecy that came true to every detail that Jesus gives to. And then he jumps forward and then he talks about the end times. And the end times is going to be far worse than what happened in 70 AD. Far worse. It's going to be a time where natural disasters are a regular part of life. Does that sound familiar? That today I think we're living in a time where natural disasters are just a normal part of life. Hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, you name it. Mother Nature, when she rears her ugly head, it is scary. He says that's a sign that the end is coming. But he also says this, and this is the thing that's really a scary thing. He says the end times will be a time when people will faint from terror. Have you ever fainted from terror before? Have you ever stared terror in the eye and it was so intimidating that you almost passed out? That's what the end times is going to be. It's going to be such a horrible time in the history of our world where we're going to be fainting from terror. The only way I can liken it was probably in our lifetime, the worst thing that we've ever experienced in this country collectively is September 11th. That was a horrible time in the history of our country, September 11th of 2001. The end times is going to be 9-11 every single day of our lives. That's the morbid picture that Jesus paints here. It's the morbid picture that he paints. It's going to be so bad that no matter what, the majority of the people that you and I meet, there will be so much more evil in them than any good that you see in them. That's tough, isn't it, to grapple with that reality. That's what the end times is going to look like, right? And it's going to be a time at the end where our sinful nature, because we're not repenting properly... We're not making that pivot because we're, we're, we're constantly living in this sinful nature that you and I have. And that sinful nature is hard. It's hard for me. It's going to be a time where Satan claims authority over our sinful nature. That's the dangerous part. And Jesus gives an example of what that looks like. Jump over to chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. One of Jesus' very own, his disciple, is influenced so much by Satan that he decides to betray Jesus. Let's check out this passage. Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1. Now the festival of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officer of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money, 30 shekels of silver to be exact. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Right, when no crowd was present. You and I have to understand that at this point, the Jewish leaders were completely powerless in doing anything about Jesus Christ. They wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't. Because the only time they saw Jesus was in public. And whenever he was in public, he was healing someone or he was teaching about God. People were being amazed. His popularity was growing. They were not about to arrest Jesus when everyone loved him so much in public. They needed to arrest him in private. But they didn't have his schedule. They didn't have his detail. And when Judas came, it was such an amazing opportunity for them because prior to this, the Jewish leaders had no opportunity, no power to arrest and persecute Jesus Christ. And so what Judas does here is a tremendous blessing in their eyes, in their eyes. And so he goes there and he decides to give Jesus over to them. And we're going to learn of that account in the next few weeks as we look at this, right? It's really hard to appreciate just how big of a break this is for the Jewish leaders. And that's why they were so happy to give Judas 30 shekels of silver. Now, why did Jesus do this? Jesus discipled them for three and a half years, for heaven's sakes. 
I mean, if you were discipled by Jesus one-on-one like that, would you betray him? Why would Jesus do it? In verse 3, it says something really interesting. Satan entered Judas. Let me just give you the picture of what the end times is going to look like. It's what happened to Judas. Judas, who is a believer of Jesus Christ, who didn't surrender himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ regularly, didn't repent and ask God to forgive him of his sins regularly. What ended up happening to him was that Satan entered him. This is, not demon, this is not about demon possession, but what it is about is that when Satan enters us, what that is is that he takes over our sinful nature. It's hard enough when we have to try to fight our own sinful nature, isn't it? But when Satan takes over our sinful nature, it's evil at its purest level. And that's why Judas did what he did. And in the end, we know the story of what happened to Judas. Once he realized what he did, what did he do? He fainted from terror, didn't he? But he never woke up because he killed himself. That's the kind of terror that he witnessed as a result of it. And what Jesus is doing is that he's sharing with us a little bit of what the end times is going to look like. It's going to be a time where there are going to be more people in this world that have surrendered their soul, their sinful nature to the devil. And mind you, if you and I are not repenting properly, we are very susceptible to doing that. And some of us, we've tasted, we've danced with the devil in a little way in that capacity. And it's a dangerous place for us to be when that happens. Because then there's no peace in your heart. There's no way in how you can move forward. Am I, am I connecting with any of you here? Do you understand the realities of how our sinful nature, that if we don't do battle with it, Satan may take over it. And that's what the end times is like. That's why that's a terror that probably you and I haven't really experienced. I mean, the closest thing that I could have experienced where I almost fainted from terror was to look in my dad's eyes when he was drunk. And he came home from work. I was a little kid. And I saw the anger and the evil in his eyes. That was the closest time where I've, I've almost fainted just by looking at it. And so have you ever had that kind of experience? A terror where you fainted from. That is the end times. And Jesus said, we got to be ready for this. Because if we're not ready for this, we don't stand a chance. We have to prepare ourselves for this. Let me just give you a little deeper understanding of how the enemy or how Satan works here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul gives us this amazing discourse here of what our life was like before we, we opened our hearts to Jesus Christ. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You get that? How does the ruler of the air, how does... The devil, how do the evil spirits work in our lives when we live in disobedience? See, this is more than you just sinning. That if we don't repent properly, that what we're doing is we're going to give and forfeit authority over our sinful nature to the devil. That's dangerous because then what happens there? All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Anyone can't relate to that one? If you can, I'd love to meet you after service because I can relate to leading my life according to the cravings of my flesh and my desires and my thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving a wrath. This is a hard warning and giving us a sort of an understanding of how Satan works here. When you and I disobey, if we don't ask God to forgive us of our sins, what we're going to be doing over time... Whether you, whether you know this or not, is that you're going to give the devil greater authority of your sinful nature, which we all have, to him. And that's such a dangerous place for us 
to be. And so how does Jesus warn us? That's the end times. That's what it's going to be like. You're going to see evil at a different level. And we see it in, working out in, its, in, in a way even today in the world today. We see it at moments. We see it on the news when, when somebody goes into a school, a student, and they kill innocent lives. We see evil at its purest form. And it's just terrorizing to think of that, right? And so we see this stuff happening over and over again. So Jesus says that's what the end times is going to look like. It's when people, the majority of the people, are going to give their sinful nature to the devil. And then when you give that to the devil, you got to give it to God. If you don't give your sinful nature to God, then the devil may take it and he will do things to you and to the ones you love so much. And he will destroy their lives and your life as well. It's a very dangerous place for us to be. And so then he says be careful. He says there are three things you got to be careful of so that you don't let evil prevail in your life like that, so that Satan doesn't take over your life in that way. Look what he says in verse 34. This is really interesting. He says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. That day meaning when he returns. That when he returns, you're not going to hold your head up high and rejoice because there's a redemption that waits for you. It's gonna, you ever been trapped? There's no way out, right? There's no way. Let's kind of unpack that a little bit. What is it about carousing that Jesus said you and I have to be careful about? What is carousing? It's partying. Partying, meaning that you're, that, that's what you're consumed with. That, I, I'm not one to say you shouldn't party. Listen, I get why we like to party. We live in a culture that loves to party. But maybe you grew up in a home where your parents, when you, you were younger, they never let you go out and party, right? And so now, like, you're like, you know, just graduated college, maybe just, you know, been a few years into the workforce. And all you want to do is just party and have some fun because your parents didn't let you have any fun. Like your parents didn't even let you go on a prom, right? My father-in-law didn't let my wife go to the prom. And, man, a couple years ago, I gave him a high five for that. I said, thank you because there's nothing good that comes from somebody going to a prom, right? Thank you for telling her she can't go, right? I was traumatized by my prom experience. I brought a Christian woman with me. She was a great Christian, but she was fasting that day. I paid for her meal. We sat down. She didn't eat anything. The only thing she did was drink water. And then when I said, you want to dance, she said, I'm too weak. That's why I don't like partying. I think that was my trauma. I was traumatized by that. And I realized nothing good comes out of a party. But some of you love to party. You, you think about it on a Monday. I can't wait to go party on the weekend. My birthday is coming up. I can't wait to throw this big party at a club. We're just going to go have fun. When, you're, when your heart is weighed down by partying, when you think there's life to partying, it's sad. Because what often happens in secular partying? There's always sexual expression that's connected to that, isn't there? There's a lot of other drunkenness comes through it as well. Because we think that in order to have fun, you got to get drunk. Man, that's such a lie. I think you might laugh at people when they're drunk because it can be quite entertaining. But do you feel good after a, a day of getting drunk the next day when you're hungover? No. And so when we get weighed down by partying so much, when we get weighed down by, by, by drunkenness or drinking so much and it overwhelms us, you got to be careful because that will lead to a path of disobedience. And what that begins to do with that is then you begin to become less faithful to God. And when you do less of that and become more disobedient, we learned in Ephesians that we give the enemy stronger authority in our lives, potentially. So we got to be careful. Jesus, that's the two. And then anxieties in life, I think everyone can relate to that. When we worry so much, you can't have faith in God. Because if you truly believe that God is your God and he's going to 
take care of you and love you, then why are we worrying so much? I think people who worry a lot, really, and the reason why I know this is because I am one, you really struggle with insecurity. That's why you worry so much. When I meet people who don't struggle with insecurity and low self-esteem, they're so healthy. They don't worry a lot because they don't care about what other people think. But the worriers, you care what everyone thinks about you. Your public opinion polls are very important to you. So Jesus says you got to be careful of these three things, carousing, partying, drunkenness, and worry. He doesn't say, like, murder. Don't try to kill people. He doesn't say, go, like, that's really evil to me. But he's just talking about these three things that really doesn't seem that bad when you really think about it. But he says be careful because if your heart's weighed down with these three things, that's the pathway for you to walk away and where you allow Satan to potentially take authority over your life. So how do we protect ourselves from that? How do we prepare ourselves for the end times? Because if we're not going to prepare ourselves for this, then when the end times do come, you're going to see people, you're going to see a lot more evil and experience a lot more evil in people. And when we're not prepared, you know what we're going to do? We're going to be susceptible to that evil, and many of us, we're going to participate in it. And so if we don't prepare ourselves for the end, we don't have any chance. We don't. And so how do we prepare ourselves for the end? Because do you believe the end is coming? Amen? It's going to come, whether in your lifetime or maybe our kids' lifetime or our grandkids' lifetime. The end is going to come. Maybe another 2,000 years. We don't know. But no matter what, we're all going to die. And so you're going to meet your maker. How do we prepare ourselves for life today so that we can meet our maker, whether he comes back or whether we go and meet him? The first, we prepare ourselves for the end times by following the very words of Jesus Christ. We prepare ourselves for the end times by following the words of Jesus Christ. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus is making a declaration here, and he's also sharing a little prophecy here. You may not know this, but heaven as we know it today, the present heaven, will pass away one day. This earth will pass away one day. That means even heaven has an expiration date. The present heaven is a, is a spiritual world right now. And so when Jesus Christ comes back, what we just learned, he says, hold your head up high. Because when he comes back, the present heaven will be no more. It will pass away. And what Jesus will do is that he will reestablish planet earth to be the final heaven. So the, the, the final heaven is going to be a very physical place. Just as physical as the world in which you and I live in today. But without sin. I don't got time to talk about this much, all right? Because that requires a couple of other sermons to talk about. But he's saying that heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will never pass away. So Metro, if we're not going to follow Jesus' words, you're going to leave yourself wide open to letting the enemy take over your life. And I think the way the enemy takes over our life is that he takes over our sinful nature. Then he controls it. And then there's evil that is just so deep and dark and hard. Now, because Jesus is also God, when he's saying my words, he's not just saying his words, which is important, recorded in the Gospels, but he's talking about the very words of God. That's what he's talking about, that the words of God will never pass away. Now, some of you watch, now Easter's coming and stuff, and so when you, there's all these documentaries on the Discovery Channel about disproving the Bible, and some of you watch that, the Da Vinci Code and all that kind of stuff, and you're like, oh, I don't know, I don't know if the Bible, you can really consider it to be the authority and the word of God. My first year of seminary, uh, I took a class called Hebrew Prophets, and it was taught by Dr. John Golden Gay. He's from England, one of the best Old Testament scholars in the world. 
you ever get a book that was written by him, you ought to get it because he's really a, a phenomenal writer, but just a great scholar. And he stood up before class and he said, the only reason why I believe the Bible is the word of God, again, this guy is an amazing scholar. He's written books about Old Testament, historical backgrounds to it. He's done all of that. He said, the only reason why I believe the Bible is the word of God is because Jesus says it is so. Amen. That's it. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's got to be good enough for us. And when you know, when you look at the letters of Paul and he talks about the spirituality and the spiritual warfare, what does he ascribe the Bible to be? A sword to fight against the devil. You see, this is the sword. So if you and I want to fight, when we want to conquer the enemy and the evil forces in, our wor in the world, the best thing for us to do is to grab the Bible and to learn from it. So I want to encourage you, honestly, because I know it's hard for many of you, and I know the reality to most of us, if study is correct, we don't read the Bible regularly. Get to know the Word of God. Get into it. Ask, you know, I, I want to encourage you, like, just, you don't have to read a lot of chapters, because some of you, like, on pace to read, like, five, ten chapters a day. If you want to do that, that's fantastic. But what I like to do when I read the Word is I read about, a, you know, about ten verses at a time, like a heading at a time, right? We call that a pericope in the theology world. You just focus on one pericope, about eight to ten verses, and you ask two questions. God, what am I learning about you in this passage, and what do you want me to do? You're going to learn about God, and as you learn about God, you're going to learn his ways, and that's going to give you the strength to fight your sinful nature. It's going to give you the strength to fall deeper in love with your God, and it's definitely going to make Satan cringe because when he knows Christians who know their Bible, he runs away from them. Amen. Make no mistake about it. So I want to encourage you to get in the word. You know David Hosang, Dr. David Hosang from our own church. He's a New Testament professor, and... Uh, He's going to teach a class, and I want you to write this down in the summertime. I don't know the exact dates, but in the summertime, the class is simply entitled Bible Interpretations for Life Transformation. I don't know about you, but that sounds like an amazing class to sign up for so that you, you and I can learn to study the Bible so that it can really impact and transform our lives. There's a way in how you and I can do that. But the devil cringes at Christians who read and know the Word of God. When my daughter Kayla was about a year and a half old, um, she would... Just, just out of nowhere, she would just wake up in the middle of the night with these night terrors. I had no idea what they were. I just thought she had a nightmare. I'm like, ah, it's fine. Babies have nightmares too. But it was different because she didn't stop crying. And she kept looking around. And she kept pointing to me, wanting me to see what she sees. She was being attacked by demons. And I didn't know that. And originally, I was just like, come on, go back to sleep. It'll be okay. And it took me a little while when I realized, oh, no, she's actually seeing demons. And I just thought, God, what do you want to do with this girl that demons are attacking her at this early age of her life? I have no idea. Now that she's getting older, I think my wife and I see some things about her that's so, like, beautiful that we realize, huh, maybe now I see. I thought about that this morning as I was working on this sermon. I prayed for her that the demons would leave. And I'm going to be honest, it didn't work. She kept crying. She kept pointing. The only thing that worked was the Bible. I whipped out John, and I read the I am statements. When Jesus says, I am, I am the bread of life. And I read Psalms 23 over and over to her. And as I did that, you know what happened? She fell into a quiet sleep. You don't understand. You have an arsenal, a weapon that can defeat anything, especially Satan and his demons. 
and you think you should just read this just so that you can know a little bit about God, I think that's great. But I think this is life. How are you going to be able to stand tall with the enemy if we don't devote ourselves to the Bible? Jesus says his words will never pass away. You can trust in it, and I hope that you will. Because those who really know their Bible and, and, and know their God through it are prepared for the end. It won't come to you like a day where you feel like you're trapped. You'll be ready and you'll hold your head up high and you'll say, come Jesus. The redemption is near. Know your word. You know, the best way how God speaks to us is actually through the Bible. And if you want to hear from God, all you have to do is read the word and God will speak to you. So can I encourage you this week? Set a plan for it. How are you going to engage with the text? All right? And, uh, and do that. I encourage you to start with the Gospels. Start with one of them. You know, perhaps John might be the best one to start with. Follow Jesus' words. Second, we prepare ourselves for the end times by staying alert. By staying alert. Verse 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Now, that, that in verse 36, be always on the watch. Uh, uh, it's in the present imperative tense in the Greek language, in the original language. And that's significant because when anything's in the present imperative, it's a command, but it's also something that we need to do ongoing, regularly. It's not just something we do once, but it's something that we should be doing every single day. We should be alert. Why? Because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. You should be alert. Why? Because you just don't know when the end is really going to happen. You don't know when that today might be the last day that you live. I hope it will never be for any of you. But for some reason, this past year at our church, there have been more deaths in people's family than I've been able to remember in times before. We just don't know when our last days will be. We have to be ready. And so part of that is staying alert, staying alert to God. Look at what Jesus says. He goes deeper into this discourse in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 44. Let's just look there really quickly. He says this. He says, therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let this house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You see, you and I have to stay alert. What do we have to stay alert to? We have to stay alert because there is an enemy that's trying to destroy you and me. We got to be aware of that. In order for that, we got to train. We got to read the word of God. We got to know it so that we can fight the enemy. And please, when I talk about the devil, some of you get scared. The devil has zero power over your life if you have Jesus in your heart. Jesus says that the devil, all he is, is that he's a chief of liars. That's how he works. You know how he controls your sinful life? It isn't like through this, like, I'll shake the ground. You will listen to me. No. He just tells you lies that you think are true. And then he takes over your life. That's really what it is, right? You got to be alert to that fact. That there is an enemy that's trying to destroy your life. And his goal is for you not to even care about God and for you to live a different kind of life outside of what God has, has desired for you in your life. So we got to stay alert. Staying alert is a matter of life and death. I wish Judas stayed alert. He wouldn't have betrayed Jesus if that happened, if he stayed alert. It's a matter of life and death. 
all right? And if we can stay alert, stay alert to, to, to the fact that maybe Jesus might come back, staying alert that we don't know when the end is going to happen. And so because we don't know when the end is going to take place in our life, that we're going to stay alert and be prepared. Then Jesus says in verse 28, he says, when these things begin to take place, which means the end times, he says, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to think that this is going to be a trap when you see Jesus coming from the clouds. You're going to be happy because you've stayed alert. Staying alert also, not only staying alert to the evil forces that are at work, but you, guys, you and I have to stay alert to God. That do you know that God wants to minister? Like, what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? Is it just like that during that 15, 20 minutes when you pray and maybe read the word, that's when he's with you, and then throughout the day he's not there? God wants to kick it with you all day. But many of you don't let him kick it with you because you're not staying alert. That you're, like, you're passing God by like as you're walking to work from the subway, from the bus. You're missing God in so many places because you're not aware that God's around because you're not staying alert. Staying alert is important. And because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you can stay alert and God will begin to navigate and direct you. You ever meet Christians where they kind of say to you, oh, man, you know what? Like, God just told me to do this and I just did it. And you're like, what? Like, God doesn't tell me to do that. And you wonder, like, how does God always speak to these kinds of people? But I don't really get that kind of, you know, opportunity. Maybe it's because you're not staying alert. Stay alert. Be aware that God is with you every step of the way. Stay alert to those things. Because if we don't, we're not going to know. We're not going to know this God. And you know what you need to really stay alert to? That there are people that God has brought into your life that don't know Jesus. Are you staying alert to that? Or do you just think you just hang out with these folks at work? You maybe go to parties with them. Maybe watch some sports, play some basketball with them. Are you staying alert to the fact that maybe God has allowed you to connect with them because he wants you to lead them to Jesus? You see, those who stay alert know that. Evangelism is not about you understanding and being able to pontificate all these theological principles about who God is. That's not what evangelism is. Evangelism is just about you staying alert and being aware that maybe God might use you in your friendships with other people to impact somebody's life. 98% of all Christians come to know Jesus Christ. You know how? Through a friend or through a person that they're in relationship with. If I were to ask you, who is the person who made an impact in your life that allowed you to come to know Jesus Christ, all of you would have one name. 98% of you. Staggering statistics, Metro. And so you know how God is going to work today? He doesn't just work by sort of shaking the ground and, making, and just talking to somebody sort of, sort of ancillary to outside of a relationship with somebody. No. It's going to happen as you're in relationships with them. And so I want to encourage you that we have an Easter service coming up in a few weeks. It's going to be at the high school again. You have invitation cards in your bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin, there's, there's a bunch at the welcome table. I want you to grab a few of these. All of you have at least two to four people in your lives that you are friends with that don't know Jesus. Why don't you think about getting to know them a little bit more, maybe inviting them to come to church on Easter Sunday. Research say that if you invite five, three will come if you have a relationship with them. If you invite five, three will come. Think about that. And if they give their lives to Jesus, it's not because, you know, it's because Cindy and I are going to be preaching on Easter together. I can't wait. Your first tag team preaching I've done in a while. It's not because it was us. It was because of you. It was because of your friendship and your ability to invite and connect with them. And we just kind of played a role in it, a very small role, but it's your role that God wants to use. Staying alert. Are you alert today? Are you staying alert to God?
That's such a key component. Three years ago, um, after Easter Sunday in April of 2015, my family, my wife and my kids, we went out to California. And uh, my daughter, Christina, turned 13, and I kind of promised her that when you turn 13, I told my kids, when you turn 13, we'll go anywhere you want in the country. And so she wanted to go to Pasadena. She wanted to go to her birth city. And so we, we went as a family, and we toured the area where she was born and stuff like that. Before we went out there, my mother had gotten sick. I didn't know exactly what was going on with her, but she had fever and stuff like that. I just thought it'll pass. And as we were in downtown Los Angeles, staying at a hotel on a Wednesday, this doesn't happen to me very often, but as I was sleeping, I still remember the time, it was 7 o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and I literally heard God say, your mom needs to go to the emergency room. You need to get somebody to take her. And so I called my sister-in-law, Michelle, and I said, hey, could you please go, just get to the parking lot, I'm going to tell her to come down, please. And so she did that, I told my mom to go, they went, and luckily, you know, she went to her internist, and... They just took some blood samples. They, didn't, they, didn't, they, they couldn't really help her. And luckily, we had two doctors from our church that was in, at the hospital, and they looked and attended to her. And they both said to me, they said, Peter, if you waited another day, she probably would have died. She had a UTI, urinary tract infection, that got into her bloodstream, and she stayed in the hospital for an entire week. You see, staying alert is a matter of life and death sometimes. I would have been an orphan today because a year later, my father died if I lost my mother first. And some of you, you underestimate the importance of this thing of staying alert. Jesus is saying, you've got to stay alert. You and I have to stay alert. Follow his words. Stay alert. And then the last thing to prepare ourselves for the end times, he says, pray. Pray. Verse 36, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Why did Jesus go out every night at the Mount of Olives? Was he like an outdoors guy who wanted to sleep underneath the grass and look and stare at the moon? Is that what Jesus liked to be out? He was an outdoors guy? No. He was praying all night. All night he was praying because he knew that just a few days he would be crucified on the cross. So he was praying all night. It wasn't just, he didn't just up his prayer level just because he was going through a hard time. In, in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the disciples knew exactly where Jesus was when people were, they're like, where's Jesus? We know, he's praying. We'll go find him. And they knew exactly where he was. He was praying. Jesus, listen, if Jesus, who was God, needed prayer and believed in prayer, how come we don't? If Jesus saw the need for that kind of prayer, and he's God, then what about us? And I love the progression here of the prayer because it's so honest and real, right? He says, pray that we won't have to go through any pain or go through any of this stuff. But then at the end, he says, but then you got to just pray for strength. Because look at what Jesus does here in, in uh, Luke 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to look at this during Holy Week. Luke 22, 42 to 43. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Again, he's saying, God, I don't want to go through this. Take it away from me. But then what follows is really important. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. See, that's important. So you can be very honest in your prayer. You could say, God, take away this pain because it's so hard. At Metro Community Church, God is not in the business of taking away your pain. He's in the business of redeeming it. And he's never going to redeem your pain by you praying, take it away. He'll redeem it if you pray for strength to endure. Redeeming 
experiencing redemption from God after you go through a time of suffering is so beautiful. It's not really beautiful when you're going through it. So like when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he even said, God, why are you forsaking me? But once God raised him from the dead, now he's sitting in God's right hand. He sees the beauty of what pain and what suffering can produce in one's life. Praying gives you strength to endure suffering. But praying also gives you the strength to fight off any worries in your life. Any passion for partying so much that you end up doing things you end up regretting. And you certainly won't fall in love with substance like alcohol or drugs to look for life and joy. Praying gives you the strength to redeem the beautiful things that look like death in your life. So that's why Satan has really no power at the end. Because no matter what he does, God will redeem it if you allow him to. And that's the good news. Amen? Amen. So will you surrender yourself to God? Because that's what prayer is, surrendering yourself to the very lordship of Jesus Christ. And you know what Lord is. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus being Lord, his job description is ministering God's grace to your life. When we have God's grace in our life like that, as we pray, the devil can't even touch us. And I hope that you would know God through your prayers. I don't struggle with partying. I, I don't like parties. I'm an introvert. I hate going to places. And, you know, I mean, if you invite me, I may go. But I don't like going into a room full of people, of, I don't, of strangers. It just really de-energizes me. So I never struggle with partying. When I was in college, I went to bed at 12 o'clock at night every day. That was like my late, that was my curfew. I would never stay up past 12 a.m. Because I'm kind of routine like that. I would never drink because of what I saw in my father, because I saw the evil that my father possessed when he got drunk. I never touched alcohol growing up. Never struggled with it in my 20s. The thing I did struggle with, though, is worrying. I get it from my mom. She worries, and she gets it from her mom that she's never met in her life. But when I went to Korea, I learned that the reason why her mother, my grandmother, died, because she worried too much. They said it affected her heart, and she ended up dying. And back in those days, they, there were no hospitals. She couldn't get a proper diagnosis. But my great uncle said because she worried so much. So I get it from my family line. And um, when God called me to be this pastor and, and called me to plant this church when I was in my first year of seminary, I worried. I had no ministry experience. I worked in the marketplace before I decided to go into ministry. I didn't really, I preached maybe a handful of times before I came and started this church, like less than five times. And, you know, you guys know I got a C minus in my communications class in college. <laughs> Communicating was not my thing because, again, an introvert, I got anxiety when I come up and speak in front of people. That was hard. And, you know, when I, and, you know, I served two years at a church, at a real large church. It was a few thousand people. Dave Gibbons was the pastor. It was the new song. And I had no ministry experience because my job was an administrative assistant. I, I served David, Hosang. I was his assistant. I sent out emails. I was a towel boy during ba- baptisms, right? That was my experience. I didn't preach. I, and so, like, I remember I really struggled with it. I'd stay up at night and thinking, God, you called the wrong person to do this. There's no way I can do it. And I remember getting together with Dave Gibbons, our senior pastor, and I just poured my heart out to him, and all he did was laugh at me. <laughs> he said, don't worry, God's going to be with you. I'm thinking, man, you are terrible at counseling. That doesn't help me at all. 
Because I look at him and he's so polished and so out there and he's like a superstar in my eyes, a spiritual stud. And I was so far from that. And so worry just captivated me, right? I remember no one ever asked me to preach, especially at that church. I did get one chance. It was through a group of college kids on a Friday night college service. The, guy, the past college pastor finally asked if I would speak right before I left, probably about a month before I left. It didn't go well. I'm intuitive to know that it just didn't go well. And I knew that he wasn't happy with my, my, my sermon. And, uh, but, you know, he tried his best, said, hey, man, thank you, appreciate it. And that was it. And I just thinking, oh, man, what am I getting myself into? And then when we came here in October of 2013, we got together like a quarantine, and somebody said, hey, can you preach? I never heard you preach. I'm like, why you got to bring that up in front of everyone? In front of the 11, you don't have to bring that up. Man, I had so much insecurities. I didn't think I could do this. I said, God, I, there's no way I could do this. And then our first preview service was January of 2004. It was our first. We do church like once a month kind of a thing. And then we launched in April of 2000. So Easter will be our 14-year anniversary. Actually, Easter Sunday, right? In January, it was snowing. It was a snowstorm. And I remember just thinking, God, who's going to come out to our preview service if it snows? I stayed up all night and I prayed. And the more I prayed, the more it snowed. I said, God, you're not listening to me. Stop the snow now. I know you want this church to, to succeed, so come on, stop the snow. It just kept snowing. I was so worried that whole night. I didn't sleep. I can't tell you how discouraged I was. I was so discouraged. And I went up to the Fort Lee Athletic Club, and I just, I heard 11 people. I opened the door, and I don't know what was wrong with these guys, but they didn't even, I, I thought they didn't know it was snowing. The excitement, the passion in their eyes, the hope that God is going to do something today. I just broke down in front of them. I said, you guys got to forgive me. You're humbling me to tears because you have more faith in this than I do. I worried so much that day. And God brought 67 people out to that service. I couldn't believe it. Amen. I preached. I think it went okay. <laughs> More people came back. Man, if you don't know your Bible, if you don't stay alert to God and what he's trying to do, and even now I'm still trying to do that after being here for 14 years and it gets harder and harder. And if you don't pray... I don't think you can be prepared, not just for the end. You won't be prepared for anything in this life that God wants to give to you and me. So I know it's a basic sermon. But will you follow God in a very basic way today? Will you read the word and get to know the words of God? Learn about him. Fight the devil with the sword of the word. Will you stay alert to know that God wants to speak to you and do things in your life on a daily basis? Be alert to it. Be alert to the people he brings into your life that don't know Jesus Christ because maybe he'll use your life and the closest thing that they ever get to meeting Jesus will be through you. And pray the way Jesus prayed. He prayed all night because he needed strength from his God. And I pray to God that today more than ever that you would just need strength from your God, not from your work, not from your salary, not from your retirement plan, not from even your earthly relationships, but that you would truly need strength from your God who created you.
because then you'll be ready for any end that comes your way. Let's pray.